What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. was I to know in memory of Kathy Sesnick 1942 to 1969 how was I to know if it weren't for her I wouldn't be here if she had stayed quiet I wouldn't be here if she intended to leave me in the dark I wouldn't be here I wanted her to leave me alone. I wanted her to mind her own business. I wanted her to save me. How was I to know I was her business? Too intense after she left. They were so afraid of the light. Stomp out every ember. Nothing left to do. Go deep, deep, deep within. How was I to know the depths would save me? How was I to know if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here? Hey, everybody. It's really fun to be back with Shane, of course. Our guest today is somebody that you all know, and we are so thrilled to have her back again. We are talking to Jean Wayner today, and she has brought her guest. So I'm going to let Jean invite her guest, and then I'm going to ask her guest to tell us a little bit about himself. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks, Shane. It is good to be back. I believe I've been on three different times, and Dr. Alan Lachter has become a tremendous support 
to the trauma that I've experienced and how she's been able to use my book and able to help others, the activist that she is for the ritualistic sexual abuse. All of that to say, the person who I'm bringing with me today is Ed. He is my brother. He is a Irish twin. I couldn't have done what I've done with any of the other six brothers. Ed, we have some kind of simpatico. And that's why I feel like he has truly been the gift that's helped me get this project to its completion. Thank you, Jean. I am the next youngest brother to Jean, as she indicated, one of seven boys and have been supporting her, listening to her, working with her as a support since 1992, when she began remembering, and even before that, when we discovered from her that our great uncle had been abusing her. So this was a path that the family was taking with her. It was a very unique path, but at the same time, we all, in our own way, supported her. And I, at the time, through all of that, was employed as a judge. I'm an ex-judge at this point in time. But it was my fortune to be able to have retired at the time that she began writing, we'll talk about it, the book that she just came out with and have worked pretty closely with her. I was the editor of the book and learned so much and also myself just grew immensely as a result of editing this book. So I guess that's who I am in a nutshell. Jane, with the first question I wanted to ask, you shared in The Keepers that in 1992, that for the first time, you began remembering being sexually abused at Keogh High School by clergy and others. What or who helped you get through once you began remembering? That's a good question. When I began remembering, I already had some of those what's or who's in place, which was, I believe, the reason that I could begin remembering. There's two categories. One is humans. The other is my inner journey companions, the makings of the healing process. So in the human element, it was therapists and spiritual counselors, prayer partners, movement therapists, massage therapists, friends and family. I say it as if there were a ton of people. I could let very few people near me. I had a very specific group of people. But when I say family and friends, They were more spiritual, kind of moral supporters. I could not have done anything without these people in my life. The reason I began remembering is because as a spiritual director, I already had some of those people in place. All of that became foundation. And they just continued as I began remembering. I also feel that the tools like journaling, doing my prayer or meditation, these were all things that I was already doing. So those tools were already, because as a spiritual director, that's the tools I was taught for four years to use with others on their spiritual journey. So the other supports, I would say, would be spiritual guides. 
along the way of this process, this journey that I write about, I became spontaneously aware of whether it was an owl or a snake, Jesus or Kathy Sesnick. There, there became this movement beyond my thinking it through that seemed to just come naturally, organically. Another kind of part of the process that I know I couldn't have done anything without were the personas, those aspects of myself that as trauma happened, I fragmented. And the more intense it became, the more, let's say, dissociated or severed those personas, those parts of me became. And they held a lot of that trauma, a lot of particular experiences. And as I began the journey in 1992 to find myself and integrate myself back into who I was, these personas became very important. And they also became an eye-opener for me that I was much more than I had ever thought I was. And I couldn't have survived without these aspects of myself holding this pain and suffering until I could handle or deal with it. What has life been like for you since the Keepers aired five years ago? What the Keepers did for me is it accelerated my healing. So after the lawsuit, which I believe was the appeals was, I think, 1997. The Maryland suit was, I believe, 1995. So when the church did what they did to silence me with the courts, my healing process went into a backseat slow-mo, still moving, but not at all that movement that could have happened. When the Keepers came out, I had an acceleration of that healing. And so that year after it came out, I went off the grid no contact information. I'm a, a practitioner of Reiki, reflexology. No one could find me. I had no information on any of the, I called every membership that I had and got off of them. I was afraid people were going to come and throw eggs. I really believed that there was going to be this horrible reaction equal to what I had been told, that they were all going to say I was lying and that I was making it up that I was crazy. So that was the first year. Then as I got more grounded, I began thinking about what was I still about? And that was the psychological and spiritual journey that I had been on simultaneously, but could not talk about, didn't even have the language for. And I thought that's what it is. So then we ended up having the gathering, whether that was with family or friends, however we did it. But it was really, for me, it was writing the book for three and a half years was what I did next. It was very private, so I could still keep my private. I did interviews, I did talks, but this became the focus. I had something to say. I knew it after the courts. And with the support of others, I was finally able to do that until now. Jean, we're going to get into the meat of the discussion. You recently published your second book, and we're going to come back to the first one in a minute, Walking with Aletheia. So the first part of this question is for you. 
what's the significance of the title and why did you decide to write the book? The significance of the title started with my son after the filming was complete. I actually write about it and he puts his version in the book. It's The Gift of Alethea and that's chapter 17. In the audiobook, he actually reads his part. So it was one of those moments. He had carved a structure. We sat here at my dining room table and he was presenting it to Ryan White, Jessica Hardgrave, and John Benham, who were the crew for the Keepers, as you guys know. And I was just listening. I was amazed at what he had done. And he began to explain who Alethea was and why he chose Alethea and that she's the goddess of truth. And as he spoke, I knew that I was being, again, in that whole idea of psychological and spiritual movement, I knew I was being introduced to someone that was very important in my process. Didn't know why, didn't know. I just feel it. So for me, the idea of what is in this book is about truth. It's about speaking our own personal truth and trusting it no matter if anyone else believes it or not. And that seems to be what my journey has been a lot about. But that to me is a big part. My son, Greg, carving this structure, this carving presented it as gift to them. And I felt it was being handed to me at the same time. The detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Alethea's symbol, similar to a mascot for other goddesses, is the mirror. She holds it outward for those who look to just see the truth. It reflects back to them. Throughout my health walk, others continually reflected what they saw in me back to me. That ongoing interaction by itself, I have to say, was a powerful healing tool for me. I wanted to cover that expressed my journey with truth, my inner journey with truth, my lived experience with truth. I also wanted a modern picture of me as the adult looking into the mirror of truth and finding the child within. 
which was me. The designer of the book picked this Persian rug. And these Persian rugs always had a prayer rug that went with them. And she picked this because she felt very much like the truth is often kicked under the rug. That what the archdiocese, what the police department, what the courts want to do is just kick it under the rug. And yet what she felt with the Persian rug is there's a prayer rug. And that prayer rug in the center of all that crap being pushed under the bigger rug is where that got to come up and out. So it, they thought they were hiding it under the rug and the little prayer rug in the middle because of the meditation and the quiet and the, the reflecting brought it all up, still out of the rug, but out of the prayer rug. So I just thought her thoughtfulness in figuring out what to put and how it connected with my journey was pretty, pretty on target. You alluded to this a minute ago. You said that you knew you had something to say after the courts. Was that what motivated you to begin to put it down on paper in the form of a book? Yes, I had actually tried two other times. I sat with my sister and my friend, Barbara Brunk, and we did tapes. We were I worked with Tom one time, and he was going to write a book. That was right after the final appeal. And to tell you the truth, I was too terrified. Now that everyone had closed it all up, I really felt like I was seen as a liar. Tom and I went so far, and both of us knew we couldn't go any further. So there were like three times that I tried to write that spiritual psychological movement that I was so aware was going on separate from the physical. And that was the start of it, was after the courts, when I knew I wasn't done. It's always that feeling like, am I done? And I knew I wasn't done. And that's one of the big things I wasn't done with. I had to share that process. I'm going to turn to you now. Do you have a favorite part of the book and why? Is there a section that speaks to you the most? I guess if you're speaking of a chapter, it's for me, it was in terms of editing it and this process that I'll give you an idea of how we work together. Jean would just put things on and would give me what it was, her version of what it was. And then I would, I guess this is the same process most editors do. I would look at it. I would try to maybe some sometimes reorganize it. Most of the time, not do that, but do some wordsmithing, try to make things maybe simpler. And I remember getting Lantern in the Bow and just being blown away. It was an incredible five pages. It's only five pages. And for me, it's so succinctly dealt with what her life has been like in terms of the growth from the terror that she was feeling. And in that chapter talks about the wise old woman who is on the cross, who is taken from the cross, but is wailing in agony. And yet at the same time, both has the realization of the sadness, incredible sadness of what's happened. And yet at the same time, has the wisdom to be able to see the bigger picture. And you have two figures in that chapter. One is 
the very young child who was hidden away in order to protect that core of goodness. And then you have the wise old woman who has seen what has happened to that particular human being by these monsters. And that is all in one chapter. And her journey through the bowels, it's through the shit of what she had to deal with her life. And at the bottom of the bowels is, again, this young girl who still is, holds the goodness of who she is. It has that in it, but there's more. It has her relationship with Jesus. It's summarized in such a clear way of having come from a relationship with Jesus as God or the Son of God and a spiritual friend. By the end of the chapter, making a contract with him like, all right, it looks like I don't have any choice but to keep you in my life. But if I'm going to do this, don't expect me to accept whatever it is you tell me without asking questions. So there's that maturity of we're not going down this road again. And I think all of those things combined together, as I said, I just like my mouth just hung open. This is such an incredible piece of writing. And so that's my favorite. I bought the paperback and then I actually bought the Audible because I like to listen to books and I knew that you had narrated it yourself. I thought both were powerful, but I'm so glad that I got the Audible because I was able to hear your family and there was something different about listening to you tell your story. The writing was impeccable, but the verbal part, Gene, just struck, just hit me in the heart. So what was your favorite chapter of the book? I would say it was Birth of a Warrior, chapter 24. And the reason I would say that is that I'm not just writing a story. This all came out of journals. The experiences were lived. So not just the experience of back then, but these were the ways that I came to know what I experienced. And so I do know that the fact that I could feel that I had felt like my spirit had been killed for a number of years, that I, that, that it was dead. I knew it as an adult. I just felt as I began remembering and understanding, I understood why. And in that meditation that went on and goes on, I felt the pure devastation. I felt me on that floor. I was on that floor as Francis, that persona. I was done. So when this warrior came up. I'm still amazed. I'm still in awe of what can happen. She just came up in armor. And I, oh, part of me is, I want to be her. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It took a lot of work to realize I am her. That came from me. That was the big final, aha. If I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to have to do exactly what I'm told. I don't even care what it is anymore, but I am not going to end up just staying on this floor dead. You will not kill me. 
Now, I don't even pretend that I knew any of that as it unfolded. It has been years of coming to understand that. So I would say birth of a warrior still makes me cry because I can feel presence of myself come up and just say, you're not going to take us down. You're just not going to take us down. I don't know what I'm going to do, but you will not destroy me. I think what you just shared is so poignant because people get it. People that have been through something, some trauma, get it. When that warrior inside and that's the core of what we are whether it's an illness or a loss or a wrong from somebody else I think the way we're made is that there's that nugget inside that's not going to give up and there you were I think there's one other emotion that always comes with this and I have to continually deal with it why that didn't happen for others really does blow my mind I it makes me a bit crazy why others didn't have that within them. I don't understand because I am always aware that I could be dead right now. I'm always aware that I would be dead right now if certain things didn't happen. And this was one of those things. So I do always have such a heavy heart for those who couldn't or didn't or for whatever. I can't even explain it. But it does still hurt my heart to think, why me? Why me? It's no different than any of the other women, the ones who are still hiding. I'm no different. It, maybe, it, it's heavy. Maybe it's you because you were chosen to do this job. That's a bigger conversation. I know. We can talk <laughs> about that another time. I, I think the last quarter of my life is about this journey. So anyway, I would like to jump in here at one point and note that Jean does both in her first book, but also in this book does quote the Maya Angelou piece about the surrender uh, is as honorable as fighting, especially if one has no choice. One of the things that I would comment on, and Jean, I hope you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong, is that arising of the warrior was just the idea of this is a point of surrendering in some ways to what they're doing. 100%. But it is the only honorable thing to do in this situation. Because what happened is that warrior became my worst enemy. That warrior was the whore. That warrior became what I despised most about myself in order to survive and get out of there. So it became a two-edged sword. It became one of the hardest parts of myself to, at some point, begin to interact with. You both have mentioned a couple times Jean's first book, which I have a copy of back when we did our first podcast episode together. Some listeners may not know what we're talking about, but a while back, you released a first book called Conversations with Myself. Can you explain to us what the difference between that book and this book is? And if you both could, give us what your favorite poem is from that book. Sure. The difference is that Conversations with Myself is, there was a particular way that I wrote after the courts said, give us your journals or 
basically this is going to come to some kind of stop or slow or no, nothing. I began writing in this kind of more poem form. After the keepers came out, I was going to put them up on my webpage. And my sister, Cass, and my daughter, Sarah, said, don't do that. People will start cutting and pasting and saying theirs. We think you should do a book. So I thought there's that's the last thing in the world I have energy for, nor do I know what to do. And Tom Nugent's wife, Amy Nugent, said she would help me. And so she began to help me put together this little book. And next thing it went out, I published it, self-published. And I call it Conversations with Myself. And I use the capital M, my, and a capital S, because the self is that core. It's where we connect somewhere within all of what we are. So the conversations were with the bigger self, beyond what I knew, what I understood. So it's leaving this open kind of connection to allow that dialogue, that conversation, that connection, and then to discern it after the fact with those you trust. And so that's what this book was about, Conversations with Myself. Walking with Alethea was, it was almost like I took all of my journals and all the things that had happened. And Walking with Alethea is a master journal. It became everything in a fine-tuned, integrated way. It was one of the most healing parts of my process. How do you talk about spirituality and psychological workings of the brain while you're talking about things that are happening in the body, this body, mind, and spirit? So that that's the difference. This is one particular time I was doing a writing. I was doing a writing sabbatical, and I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to get this time to write. And I didn't want to journal the way I used to. So it became pretty impressive conversations with these younger aspects of myself. And what I'd like to do is read to you, if you don't mind, one paragraph at the beginning of the book. These pure conversations with my teen self can be disturbingly raw and painful to read. I feel that when I read them. I, however, was deeply changed, touching the depth of pain and suffering my younger self was sharing with me. It was a level of feeling I had been afraid to enter into. I could not separate my teen self from my present self in that horrible pain. There was no room for pretense. She was me. It will be impossible for me to ever again diminish the dehumanizing, torturous raping of my body, mind, and spirit by others. These poems were literally conversations with parts of me, like throwing up memories. I was throwing up memories through these poems. So they were impacting me as I was telling them to myself. The poem that still strikes me, makes me think, makes me feel. How was I to know? In memory of Kathy Sesnick, 
1942 to 1969. How was I to know if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here? If she had stayed quiet, I wouldn't be here. If she intended to leave me in the dark, I wouldn't be here. I wanted her to leave me alone. I wanted her to mind her own business. I wanted her to save me. How was I to know I was her business? Too intense after she left. They were so afraid of the light. Stomp out every ember. Nothing left to do. Go deep, deep, deep within. How was I to know the depths would save me? How was I to know if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here? I guess picking up with the relationship with Kathy, she wrote a poem, I guess it was early on, when she began to feel that Kathy was reaching out to her. And in the same way that Jean consistently says how she's not done, the message that she was getting from Kathy is, I'm not done and you're not done. And so I'm going to read a passage. I will get to the poem, but I wanted to put it in context. This poem appears also in the book. So I will read a paragraph before I actually read the poem itself. In 2009, I decided my writing would be focused on connecting with Kathy. Once I began journaling, I had a clear and direct dialogue with the younger aspects of myself who experienced the abuse in high school. This was surprising and emotionally stirring. I was the adult talking and listening to myself as a girl as young as 14. The words flowed until I knew we were finished with the dialogue. In fact, the young aspects of myself were dialoguing and struggling with each other as they talked these issues through. I felt at times that I was the adult I, as the adult, was the participant, and at other times, I was the facilitator. Whichever it was, I just kept moving with it. The talking was more akin to poetry than prose. A young persona wrote through me in late 2009. This is the poem, Eyes of Jelly. As I sit by the chair, I look with eyes that do not see. I have fooled them again. They think they are looking at me. Little do they know, I'm not even here. I've left quite some time ago. My eyes are just empty pools of jelly, trying not to be found out. If they knew, they would eat them too. Hard to even respond. I think everybody would agree with us that what you both chose is so thought-provoking. They're going to take that away with them. And since Ed shared what his part of the that book was, can you each talk about how the rest of your family has been involved in both or either book? I think everybody knows you have a very large supportive family, but and they all saw how you all pitched in together in the keepers to make some things happen. What were some of the roles that other members of your family played? Jean, you want to go first? I, again, I'm very private, as you both know, but I'm also an introvert. And this is not a topic that one wants to be chatting about. So it's not something that all of my family were called in to be a part of. 
only certain people, and it was certain family or friends, mainly a lot of therapy work or spiritual guidance and help. But I think that, I think for me, it's like, that is a given. That to me is the family without their support, without my sister being available for me to call her and talk about what just went on, without me being able to call Mike and say, I'm rolled up on the floor. I just had this horrible thing happen to me and I'm a grown woman. And it's because I remembered something. I tend to remember things when nobody's around because it's a very vulnerable place to be. And you don't want anybody to be around you when you're that vulnerable because you saw what happened when you were that when it came to this book became really, I'm a lot healthier and being a lot healthier. I don't need all those people to shore me up in the way I needed to before. And I'm a lot more accepting of the fact that I am an introvert. I'm a lot more accepting of the fact that I am private. I'm a lot more accepting of the fact that this is a very difficult subject to talk about. And I don't want to just talk about it willy nilly with anybody and everybody. I'm very aware that it can be very triggering and very upsetting to many people. And I'm very sensitive to that. So once the decision was made that there would be this process of writing and Ed said, I'm retired, I would like to help. He's been the boots on the ground, a lot of it. He's been not just my support as a brother who I know understands a lot of things that go on with us as siblings. He has been the editor. He has been the agent. He has been the, not a very good assistant, but he's trying. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. I think I I need to be fired. No, and that's why I haven't paid you anything yet. I'm waiting for that assistant to show up and your sister holding back on me, but I'm not real happy with that part. But there are other things I'm pretty happy with. But with that, I would say you you do see what I have to put up with, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I have to tell you, there Ed would do this editing, and it would be like sometimes it would be like he would pick because he's got a much bigger vocabulary than me. And so at certain times he would say, How about this word? And I'd say, Ed, I have to be able to pronounce it if I'm going to pretend that came from me. And he'd be like, this is how you pronounce it. And I'm like, I still can't pronounce it. And I got to look it up in a dictionary. So we had a, quite a few times where we struggled, but there were probably, I can think of two in particular where I was pissed. I was pissed and I was yelling at him. And he was like, I have to get off the phone now. And I knew. I was like, he's going to stop. I pushed him too far. Then I'm calling and I'm like, hey, Ed, are you there? Are you? I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to be such. I'm telling you, this guy's put up with a lot. But that's why I think he's good because he does know how to not take it personal, not take it serious, not have to understand it. He knows he's about helping me get through to the next thing. And that's what a good editor, I think, really does. So that, but I do think that I can't not say that everyone that loves me and knows me, family, friends, this has been writing that I know has been shored up by their love, their support, 
their good thoughts, their prayers. I feel that there's a focus group, I need to say. It was family and friends that we called together at the beginning and sat in a room and asked, do you think anyone would be interested in a book written by me about this more personal healing journey? And all of them, for different reasons, said they did think it would be. Then I also know that another group were readers. I had readers that would read, and they were given three questions, and each separately, this is before it came out, that they would answer the questions. And we then would do a Zoom with each one to see what the answers to the questions were. Then we had, I had one that was in my nephew. I have a lot of nieces and nephews with a big family. And I was always so sensitive that I was going to upset all these people because I do talk about my family. And that's one of the reasons I could never write before, because I didn't want to talk about my family when my family wasn't sitting there to say they don't agree or they don't believe it. it I didn't want to be causing them any disruption in their own self. And so I had my nephew asked him. He said, yes, he talked to Ed and Val. It's their son. Um So he knew he could talk to them and he read it. And I wanted to know, did he feel that the other nieces and nephews would understand it or would it be too painful for them? And my nephew said, Alex said, not just, oh, no, they would be fine with this. I will be a a pivotal point for them. If anyone needs to talk, they can talk to me. And so instead of sending out a big email saying, I hope everybody's going to be okay with this, I took his word for it. And as a reader, he became someone that was extremely important to the process. So interesting. Had no idea. Ed, do you want to get back at her or do you want to give your perspective on how the family worked? <laughs> I didn't know how you all the, were involved. I didn't, I didn't know this was the Jerry Springer <laughs> podcast. Now, I would like to say that I thought that the family, even though everybody was not involved, particularly in the meat of what was in the book, there was always a sentiment of support. I'm going to go all the way back to the very first time that we had discussed having the book written. but. Our dad had some reservations about doing a book. This was back in 1997 or eight. But to a person, every one of the siblings said yes. And you can fast forward to 2018 with some family members, but also close friends coming together as that focus group. And there wasn't one dissent in the whole group. And these are honest people. They're not going to hold back if they think that, particularly out of concern for Gene's well-being. I think that there's always been a concern with my dad. I mean, at the time when he originally disagreed with it, he just thought, this is going to be very hard to be coming out public with this. And so I think that to a person, with my parents and with my siblings, it's always been like, Gene, how is this going to benefit you? And And how could it hurt you? I think that's been an important role for the family. But again, whether intuitively we knew the strength that she had in herself or for whatever reason, we all to a person said, you've got to do this, even though part of the book is about some very unseemly things that happened within our extended family by my uncle. And who wants to talk about that? But it's the truth. It's Aletheia. (laughs) So fortunate that you all have a safe place to land with each other. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Gene, what did you want readers to take away from your book? And what was your message when you wrote it? One of the more important things is that we all survive traumatic events differently. And we heal from those experiences differently. I am just sharing my process and the way that I have come to do me. I think it's the message is find someone that you can trust and explore what works for you. I have a number of things that I feel when I think through the book that I have made the way that we're not responsible for other people's actions. It's very important that especially people who have been or are being sexually abused, that we're not to blame for what others made us do. These are very hard things to accept, and I still struggle with it. But if you can find someone that you can trust and confide in, that you can start saying it out loud and start hearing the nonsensical words that are coming out your mouth. It is okay to work on personal boundaries, to say no. We don't know how to do that as survivors. We know how to survive. And a lot of times that means we'll do whatever in the world anybody in the room needs us to be do, just so long as we can survive any kind of situation. I think it's important that I hope people take back with them from reading this. It's important to ask, how will this benefit me when making hard decisions, any kind of hard decisions, that it's not selfish, it's self-care. And I think what I hope, any anyone of any type of trauma, that you're not alone And there are many folks hoping to help you on your own personal health walk. It's just trying to take that little step into figuring out what that means for you. I have had to learn that from Eugene, that I have to take my direction from survivors because I'm not. And it was so important and critical to me to learn from your signs, you, Teresa, Donna, everybody that I've met to just be sensitive and be a sponge because we have to learn from each of you the best way 
to to support you and to make you as comfortable as possible. And that was tricky. And you and I talked a little bit about this before. And I remember you said it took you a while to trust me. And I so appreciate you saying that because I understand that now. Because I'm like this, I have some emotional divorce from what happened to all of you because it didn't happen to me. And I need to learn so much from that. So I want to thank you for being you and for giving me some direction because it's really important that you keep doing that. But on another note, tell us how your book's been received by the public. It's been interesting. I started out with a real fear that that people wouldn't understand it, that they would come away thinking I was nutty, that it, it would take away from the truth that I have been speaking. Because what I have been speaking, as happens a lot with survivors, there's nobody to attest to it. It's, it is being in a room by yourself with all the horror that's going on or being sitting next to someone and a hand goes on their lap. It, they're, you're by yourself. It's, that's what predators do, perpetrators. So I've already said so much that I've been amazed that people believe me and then people affirmed it by showing up and there's no questioning it now. But this felt, oh, God, I'm going to be really considered the goofball. So it was very important to me to have psychologists or trauma experts read my book, not knowing what they would say. But anybody who said something, we would find out where and we would send them a request. Well written out. If you go to my website, there are at least five to six trauma specialists or psychologists who read the book and legitimized me by talking about how trauma impacts on an individual. And so the more I got that response before the book went out, the more I could breathe and that I could feel like people can say anything they want, but the experts that I value are saying, this is what happens to a person who's experienced trauma. I'm actually hearing how therapists are using the book with their patients and how the breakthroughs are happening. This is awesome. This is a dream come true. This is what I hoped would happen after McHugh did his number in all of the ways that he dished the dissociative disorders, repression of memory, whatever we want to label it. These doctors are all out there still. He can be retired. He could die. But there's an awful lot of doctors out there who, psychologists who have been taught by him to know that. And then to hear these therapists say they're using what I hoped would be an affirmation to them and a source of support and a tool that they're using it, I couldn't be happier. That's just one of those that I hope to have supported, those therapists. In the month of July, Jean has two book events scheduled so far. The first is on Sunday, July 10th at 2 p.m. at the Barnes & Noble's Ellicott City, located in the Longgate Shopping Center in Ellicott City, Maryland. The second is on Thursday, July 21st at 6 p.m., at the Ivy Bookshop in Baltimore, Maryland. You can visit Jean's website to stay up to date 
and order her books. It is jeanwainercoach.com, J-E-A-N-W-E-H-N-E-R-C-O-A-C-H.com. The link is also in the show notes. When I do events, what I end up doing, we start off with a list of questions and we have a moderator. Someone is moderating. They will ask the questions, their basic questions. So if someone hasn't read the book, they get an idea. Then someone's handing out cards. I don't have people just call out questions because I'm very concerned someone's going to say something that might either be triggering or upsetting. And this isn't the place nor the time in my mind for that. So people can write their questions down. While they're doing that, I read a chapter of the book. After I read a chapter of the book, we show the animation that was created for the Keeper's Impact site. And then we have the questions are read by somebody, and they will then pass them to the moderator who then asks the questions. After that, we ask who here needs to get their book signed real quick and get out of here. And that's what they do. And then others who want to say a little something while I'm signing the books will come after that. Because a lot of people have a little something they just wanted to say. And so we try, we've slowly gotten better at how to get it so that it's as smooth as possible and it doesn't hold people up as much as it could. For folks that will not be able to see you in person, unfortunately, where can they get your books? books, plural. And in order to get a book signed, what would be the process? There are several places to purchase the books. And one is on Jean's website, jeanwainercoach.com. Also Amazon, obviously. Barnes & Noble sells the book. Uh, And also from the publisher, lucasofiabooks.com. Reader can purchase the a person can purchase that the books from any of those. Book events again will be on the web on the walking with Alicia at gmail.com. And that's also where if someone wants to have a book signed by Jean, they can just make the request on that email address rather, the walking with Alicia at gmail.com. And there's a process she has for mm-hmm. communicating with the person, getting the payment, and mailing it out to them after she signs it. Also, obviously, if you want, you come to the event, you can have a book signed at the event also. Yeah, bring your book if that's the case that you already got it. Walking with Aletheia is also available as an audiobook on Audible. Jean narrates it herself, and I must say, it is a must-listen to, even if you've already read the physical book. If you go to audible.com, just search for Walking with Aletheia in the search bar to find the book. That's spelled A-L-E-T-H. E-I-A. You can also search for Jean Wehner, J-E-A-N-W-E-H-N-E-R. A direct link to the audiobook will also be in the episode show notes. Jean, what advice do you have for survivors of any kind of childhood abuse, as well as advice for their family members? I think it's pretty simple. I think that first and foremost, I want to say that it is still happening. Just because there are a number of older survivors who are able to talk about it for their reasons. We are survivors supporting survivors. I think it's really important to understand that I do this because I was a child and nobody did anything or knew one or the other. There are still children being sexually abused. 
perpetrators have gotten better at hiding it. Those who are the umbrellas for those perpetrators have become more savvy with what they got to present and are still keeping things close to the chest. I would say my advice is that first and foremost, we do find the courage to talk about these things that are so terribly difficult to talk about. I don't know how, but that it's shared in some way, shape, or form. The last that I had read is people are usually 52 when they start to talk about it. Think about it. 52. So if we don't, as 52, 60, 69-year-old survivors, talk in some way publicly about this, those children who are being abused, they don't get to hear elders say that this stuff happens. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.